Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo. We specialize in author interviews, audiobook, and podcast production, as well as the prestigious Firebird Book Awards and the Positive Change Podcast Awards. We also feature our fun and short podcast that allows authors to record their own writing tip to share on our very own Boom Bang, Oh My Gosh, Wow podcast. And you can find that along with the rest of our offerings at speakuptalkradio.com. Well, today I have a recent Firebird Book Award winning author to share with you. He is Devannon Hubert, and his winning book is titled Sex, Drugs, and Jesus, A Memoir of Self-Destruction and Resurrection. In this book, Devannon, a United States Air Force veteran, recounts his remarkable life story, battling with homophobia, taboo sex, drug addiction, homelessness, HIV, hep B, Devanna gives a no-holds-barred narration of his life and a path to spiritual redemption. Sex, Drugs, and Jesus is an exceptional journey from self-destruction to resurrection that you've never encountered before, and I am so looking forward to finding out more. So, welcome to the network, Devanna. Thank you, Ben. I am so happy to be here today. Oh, I'm happy that you're happy, and congratulations on winning the Firebird Book Award. Thank you so much. I appreciate it immensely. Yeah. Well, my friend, this is quite a title, Sex, Drugs, and Jesus. We've got a lot going on there. Maybe um, before we really dig into the book, just give us a bit of your background, because that obviously drives your book. Yeah, so I mean, my background originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Then I jetted off to the Air Force for six bittersweet years, and then I... um, after that, I, you know, went over to Houston, Texas, joined church, got kicked out of church, became a drug dealer, and, you know, you know, it was all downhill up here, uphill from there. Okay, so there were there were ups and downs through your life, obviously. Well, you mentioned getting kicked out of church. That seems like a pivotal moment. I would say that that's like probably the, the crux and the crucible upon which the whole story hinges. Because all my life I've been, you know, a very religious person. I consider myself to be incredibly close to God. And um, unfortunately, I, I wasn't until recently that I began to separate, you know, God from the church and everything like that. Uh, as much as I loved him, I was like so many people, and I couldn't understand that God, you know, is apart from the church, even though... We have churches, and so when this experience happened, I was at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, volunteering in many different capacities. I was up at that church at least 10 or 15 hours a week, and I applied for a job there because I was so invested in the Joel Osteen Ministries uh, concept and all the work that they were doing. A part of the um, HR process, which was, was for the church to check with social media, um, because I guess that's what churches rely on, you know, to really give a good character reference, you know, not the not the two, three years I was volunteering there, they needed to go ask my face to be sure oh. they knew who I was and so oh. <laughs> and so that's how they found out that I wasn't straight and all of that and and then they had brought me into the office and asked me things like if I had a girlfriend and stuff like that before. Churches get very, very nosy into your personal life, even if you're a volunteer. And Lakewood Church is no exception. Um, so they found out I wasn't straight. And at this time, I was singing in the adult choir on the weekend services. And I was teaching a kids group. And I was a supervisor for all the other kids, teachers as well. And 
I had a lot going on. And then I was a worship leader for the kids' department also. And they were like, well, you're not straight. We're firing you from all of your volunteer duties, uh, basically saying if you're not straight, then you must be a pedophile and we can't be having any of that. They offered me a conversion therapy package, which I extended the middle finger to them. <laughs> Tell them to go fuck them. <laughs> Wait, I'm never gonna say that on your. Say whatever you want. <laughs> I can. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I told them to go fuck themselves, and if that was the the last time I spoke to anybody, you know, on staff at Lakewood Church. Oh, can you? When was this, Devannon? This was around 2008, 2009-ish. Oh my! Not that long ago that that should have still been going on wow i can't even believe that how sad and i love that you mentioned separating god from church because i think so many people can relate to that i know i can just as a little child going to i went to public schools but every monday we had to go to catechism and the way we were treated and i remember one day i smiled at some little boy i might have been seven i smiled at some kid across the room and this nun lit into me and said, oh, this is, you know, you're the kind of trash that we don't want in our schools. And I was thinking, wow, who who says this? This is like a woman of God is speaking to a seven-year-old child like this. And I even knew that back then. And uh, boy, doesn't that just color everything and change things for you? Yeah, um, that's unfortunate that happened to you and I. Anybody who's listened to my podcast, my Sex, Drugs, and Jesus podcast, knows that I have a serious phone to pick with the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. you know, they really, 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 really get on my nerves. And and what she was doing to you is what so many churches try to do to all of us, and that's control. Yep. You know, it's all about control. I, I did a brief stint in seminary when I was going to Lakewood because I was serious about, you know, getting on staff at church and going into ministry. And I stopped seminary when one of the professors in class one day, he was like, yeah, the goal of the church is to control people. And he was just going on in his lecture as though he just said, you know, like, the sky is blue. And I was like, what, like, what the fuck what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I realized very quickly that I was in the minority in questioning why he thinks that it is the church's role to control people. Mm-hmm. You know, he said it just so mechanically and so automatically, you know, mm-hmm. and this is how people think, you know, who run churches. It's a different set of rules for the leaders as it is for everybody else. Yeah, we're kind of like that with our government as well so um welcome to the real world right right well religion and politics are the same so many people turn away from god and just never come back i mean after those kind of experiences it's like whoa this isn't for me and they go a lifetime and never come back i made that mistake at first and this is how i knew i wasn't as mature or as close to god as i would have liked to have been had I been mature and closer to God, then I would have already had it separated in my head that this pastor is the pastor, but God is God, and this church is only a building. You know, I didn't have it separated. So when they hurt me, I took it as though, you know, I wrapped God up into that pain. And it took about five or six years before I ever stepped foot in the church again. Mm-hmm. All I had to do, I mean, I say it simply, but there's a lot of emotional, religious, spiritual church trauma going on out there. And it really sends a lot of people in the downward spirals. It does. Some people have been suicidal, have been had to be put into the um, mental hospital over things that have happened to them at church. Um, the Leaving Hillsong podcast, you know, with Tanya Levine covers a lot of the um, the trauma and the drama from the Hillsong church. And I talk to her a lot and everything like that because 
you know, Hillsong and Lakewood churches are like two of the biggest churches in the world, and a lot of churches look up to them mm-hmm. and like to do what they do, you know. And so we, you know, we do our work to spotlight, you know, what a lot of these churches are doing so people know the whole truth. Mm-hmm. But I shouldn't have let that happen, you know. You know, that could have gone to like a gay affirming church. I didn't really know those existed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I should, have, I should have gone to counseling and got some mental health therapy. I didn't think to do that. So instead, I got all sad and depressed. And then I started accepting drugs from people. Up until this point, I had never accepted drugs from people. Well, I had to be at church. You know, and church was telling me drugs were bad, you know. So, so I went from having, you know, volunteering 10 to 15 hours a week and saying no to drugs to, like, having a 10, 15-hour, you know, gap in my schedule, you know, Mm. Well, then I started saying yes to everything I used to say no to out of a broken heart. Isn't that something that it's almost like um, interesting that you took that path um, and how dangerous as well? Well, I am a Sagittarius. For (laughs) those of you who ascribe value to the meaning of the Zodiac, I do to some degree. What they say about my sign is true. I'm super extreme. Yeah, I have problems with restraint. I want to take everything as far as it can go and then take it even 10 times further than that. <laughs> you know, so, but I had contained myself within the confines of religion and, you know, being in the military and everything. So I was very accustomed to functioning in environments that didn't ever let me fully be myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so now I'm out of the military. I ain't got no church to go to. You know, I was able to see what full throttle the van and really would go and do with himself. And I did the most, <laughs> you know, I really did the most. <laughs> so I, um, but oh my God, the things that we do and we have a broken heart. Now, I didn't know when I was doing all this, becoming a drug dealer, that I was seeking the community that I had learned from the church somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, you know, so the first time I walked into a trap house, the drug supplier is being really friendly and fatherly to me. I took to his warmth and I started delivering drugs for him, even though I already had a job paying 35 to $70 an hour. I didn't need the money, mm-hmm. but he gave me something extra to do. Yeah. You know, he filled that void that the church had left. And I didn't realize that that's what I was doing at the time. Oh, my. And I'm assuming that there are many, many people somewhat in this situation, not the exact same story, but that get cast aside and then wander and get into all kinds of things. And maybe many of them don't find their way back like you did. Well, that's why I run my podcast and I write these books and my blog and and some things that I have on my website, sexdrugsandjesus.com, which has turned into a huge resource for people from a variety of walks of life. Mm-hmm. Um, who are trying to reconcile God away from church. My favorite saying that I've coined myself, um, I say the further I get away from churches, the closer I get to God. Mm-hmm. So what was the catalyst that brought you back? Was there something that happened that turned things around for you? Um, I went to rehab and that was the first time I went to church. I was in rehab because I had gone down the Orleans and gotten into some trouble, as I was prone to do, even though I was still on probation, you know, in Texas. By now, I have, like, four felonies. They had them sent the SWAT team to come and get me because I was selling so much crystal meth. You know, they, they're not too particularly fond of me in the state of Texas, especially not Harris County, so you won't be finding the traits thing about, <laughs> you know, that wretched state. But with all their crazy laws now, who wants to go to Texas anyway? 
and oh. so they can keep it. So, so, so they shipped me in an ambulance from New Orleans, Louisiana, up to Shreveport. This is like a three, four hour ambulance mm-hmm. ride. <laughs> that's how, that, wow. you know, that's, those were, that was, those were the conditions. I, I had acted such a fool. They were like, you can't go, you have to go now, immediately, from one hospital to the other. (laughs) And while I was there, I guess I slowed down enough to think, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just, now this is, you know, five or six years later, since I got kicked out of Lakewood, and and, you know, now I've been to jail, but now I've been homeless on the streets, sleeping in the backs of cars, and you know, now I have HIV and hepatitis B, completely different life, you know, before, you know. I got kicked out of church. I became completely reckless and wild. You know, I got all the diseases. I did all the drugs. I got all the felonies. Completely different person. But the, the, the pivotal point was when I got kicked out of church. And um, and I just slowed down, and I just started to think. And, um, you know, and I, you know, and slowly my dreams begin to come back to me because I've been a dreamer since I was a child. So that means every time I close my eyes and sleep, I dream. They're very often prophetic. They come true or the, or the Lord is speaking to me in some type of way. The only time that in my life my dreams have ever been dark since I started dreaming was after I got kicked out of that church until the time that I began to, to slowly reconcile and rehab. But for that, for, that, for, the, for that period, from what I can remember, my dreams were dark and I'd never had that experience in my life before. Oh my. And so something really, really turned off within me you know, that day that they that they threw me out of that church, something really shut off within me. And, you know, but I love sharing the story because, like you said, so many people have either been hurt by the church or they've seen other people that they care for be dogged by the church like that. Yeah. And then we grow this bitterness, you know, and then we just you throw it all away. But as the saying goes, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bath water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you never want to step foot in the church again, don't. But I would not advise people to be all pissed off at God. Right. You know, we have to mature beyond that. Absolutely. You know, that church is a church, that preacher is a preacher, but God is completely separate. So a part of what I did when I was beginning to reconcile with God, and now this took years, it wasn't like, oh my God, I had this epiphany or this dream came to me or this white light shot. No, it was like I knew I needed to get better and feel me over time. You know, I hear these stories about these people who get these miracle deliverances, say, from drugs or whatever. They say, in an instant, I laid down the needle in the pipe and everything never looks back. I'm like, okay, that's great, but that's not going to happen for most of us. Mm-hmm. So what I've learned to accept is like a slow deliverance. Uh, I like the harm reduction models to maybe not stopping drugs, but maybe for going something less severe, maybe doing it less, you know. So if I go from shooting a crystal meth every day to two or three times a year, I'd say we're probably good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my friend, I'm glad you came out of that. Why did you decide to write about it? You didn't have to. Because I didn't take the deliverance for granted. And I know everybody's deliverance is going to look different. Mm-hmm. But there's so many things that, uh, that I felt like I needed to say in a book is something that's more permanent than if I were to say stand up in someone's church and give a testimony or something like that. You know, once you write something, it'll be available till the end of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a permanent testimony. Then I was able to get more granular and talk about different things in there, like how I was bad with money. You know, I had to bill collectors calling, you know, and everything like that. And losing my virginity, or as I like to say, transitioning into adulthood. I don't consider first time having sex to be a loss of anything. 
yeah, but yeah. I feel like that's a, a term that got put on it by the church that whoever wanted to control people, mm-hmm. I don't consider mm-hmm. that to be a loss. I think it's an emergence. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to be quiet, you know. You know, as you read through it, you see that I escaped death, you know, barely, you know, on several occasions. And, you know, God has fought really, really hard to keep me alive. And I, and I believe that it is to to speak, yep. you know, to preach in my own way and to tell that he's actually really quite good and you can survive church trauma and still get super close to God, mm-hmm. you know, and have all these diseases I talk about in the book and be all wild and reckless and still get it back together, you know, before your end. How was this for you to write? So when you sat down to write it, just give us a little peek behind your brain when you were putting this on paper. Well, now I started taking notes on this like in 2013. And around the time the pandemic started was when the actual outline was created. So it took like a decade to <laughs> actually finish it and yeah. do it. Yeah. Um. But my, and a part of it was because my mind could only handle so much. Yes. You know, as I was going back and rewriting it, either writing it or writing it over again. So I would say it was like very bittersweetly being dragged through the mud, <laughs> you know, time and time again. I can't say it was like a pleasure. Yes. Was it cathartic? Yeah. But, you know, like in the roughest way possible. Right. 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 Oh, my. What about family? Was there anyone close to you that you could cling to, or were you out there on your own? I'm just going to say it like this. I have two siblings who also live in Houston, Texas. It is it is a quandary to a lot of people who cannot understand how when you have two siblings, three siblings all in one city, and one of them is literally walking the streets every night, and the other two are not. So there was, there was a physical presence of family. Yes. One of them projected upon me their fears because a lot of the males in my family have either been drug dealers or drug users. You know, I came to realize and find out later on after I was done with my stint in the game. You know, they called me the first time I got in jail crying and hollering about how terrible it, it all is. And, you know, they told, ran told my parents that they didn't bother to come and bail me out. You know, but one of them was super dramatic about it. And the other one dropped me off some food like that one time but I couldn't really stay with them because then they became like abusive towards me. And so, so physically, yeah, there, but no, no. Okay. And that's why my parents had to come from Louisiana to Texas to get me, to take me back home to Baton Rouge because I had no support system in Houston, even though physically, yes, I have two siblings that live there. Mm, mm, mm. Wow. You couldn't make this up. Could you? No, and that's why I'm a proponent of chosen family. The very popular term going around right yes. now, but lots of us in the 2S LGBTQIA community cannot rely on our blood relatives. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have got to get over them. You know, it could have been great if it's not going to work out that way. Okay, let's go get some counseling, process the emotions, and then find some people who are going to treat us like real family mm-hmm. because we can't force blood relatives to act right. Wow. Let's uh, move on to your cover. Tell us about the cover art and how that came about. Well, I went over to 99designs.com, which is like the best place for getting cover work done for me. And I found a guy on there named Chris who lives in Greece. And he um, totally gets my aesthetic. I've run two competitions on there. The first one I did for my podcast and then the second one was for this book cover. And and um, 
they are just wonderful. And so I wanted to, uh, I want everything to have meaning from the cover to the to the back back cover, from the front cover to the back cover. And so you see, um, there's a crow standing on top of a skull. Well, the skull represents me and it represents everybody in the world too. You know, you could put any amount of skin on that face and be anybody. So that skull is is me and it's all of us. And the, the raven represents death, you know, and it's standing on top of my head because for the, uh, the majority of this book, you know, I was not the victor. You know, death was, you know, you know, like my way was dark and everything like that. So that crow represents the, the darkness and all of that. And that syringe in his mouth, you know, of course, represents the drugs, man, yep. you know, the drugs and, um, which I don't think drugs are bad. I just think if, if someone has a, if you have a broken heart or a broken mind, probably not the best time to use them. Mm-hmm. I would probably say, you know, get your emotions together. That way you don't attach the good feelings that come from the drugs with actual relief from the pain, because it's not going to give you that, right. you know, right. but drugs can be fun just, just for themselves. Hey, we're just going to like kiki this weekend, girl. Okay. It's just cute every now and then. And then, I have a rainbow cross in the center of the skull. In real life, I have a mole in the center of my forehead, so I'm all from like the center of birth marks. And so I want to do the rainbow cross, you know, to represent the whole clash in between the LGBTQ community and the church. There's a need to be a clash, but they make issues. The church makes issues out of things that just don't need to be. Mm-hmm. And so, over his left eye, we see the little weed leaf. There's more drugs and. We see the jail bars in his eyes that just represents the times that I went to jail. Um, he has a dent in his head right next to the cross and under the crow just to represent all the headaches that I went through. Mm. <laughs> and then he's got pills instead of his nose. Again, drugs. And I used to sell all of these things, pills, weed, and whatever you would want to put in a syringe, be it heroin, meth, or whatever. In the background, I've got the gears turning and everything like that just to represent the way my mind was standing and it was never at rest. And I have the smoke to represent, like, my crystal meth smoke and everything. And I've got the music notes to represent how important music is to me. Um, you know, writing music, singing music, and stuff like that. And, and yeah, that's what that all means. Yeah. I know, a pretty complex cover for sure. When you first see it, you don't really notice all of those things till after you read the book and you go back and look at the cover and then you start putting pieces together. Let's talk about your podcast, because that's exciting. That's just another way to continue this message. Is it a weekly one? Yep, it releases on Thursday of every week. Okay. Do you have guests on each podcast? The majority of them, yeah. I only recently started doing a solo podcast, you know, and I was thinking about doing it, but it came about because so many people were beginning to cancel because of COVID, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, I can't be putting myself in a position or I'm not yes. going have guests so let me you know i can always hop on the mic and you know and just like talk for an hour so then i got really got into it so there's going to be more solo episodes but the majority of them are talking with me talking to one or two people you have like 60 some episodes don't you yeah, we're yeah. getting close to the big 7 yeah, I know. Close to the big 7 <gasps> That's so exciting. I love that. I love to just to continue the conversation. You also do body work and not on cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am a licensed massage therapist and a licensed hypnotist as well. Um, 
I closed my massage therapy business because of the coronavirus. I, um, I felt like I made the ethical choice with that. Yeah. Even though the government said we could still be open, I just couldn't reconcile in my head like, okay, yes. you're telling everyone to stay six feet apart, but I can go and run a massage therapy clinic and put my hands on people mm-hmm. all day. That doesn't make any sense to me. No. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, and a lot of clientele, you know, like older and stuff like that, and it wasn't worth getting someone killed over. So I closed the business down and, and you know, you know, went, you know, full time into book writing, into the podcasting. Right. So, but strictly speaking, yeah, I am a body worker, a healer. After the coronavirus hit, it's probably not a safe idea. Right. Well, I had to because having four felonies and trying to get work is like impossible. Oh, yes. It's like literally impossible. I mean, maybe not now because so many people are not working. Yeah. You know, I love, I love that part of the coronavirus. It took a lot of the bite out of the teeth of these arrogant employers who would just judge you for every little thing. Um, I tried to volunteer at a museum downtown, but they did a background check and they were like, no, you know, because of my background, I tried to apply for college. You know, when I, when I first got back to Louisiana, like, no, your background. I was like, okay. Yeah. So I have these felonies. I cannot pay my own money to go to your school. I can't volunteer to work for you for free, and I can't go anywhere and get paid to work. You know, and then see that right there is why we have recidivism and people going back into the criminal underworld because mm-hmm. you go to jail, you get out, you're like, all right, let me try something. And like everyone is telling you no, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, everywhere you go. And so. T- enough time passed between my felonies that I was able to go to massage therapy school. And that's why I opened that business because, you know, I had to start off as a janitor mm-hmm. at the Department of Veterans Affairs and a mental health therapy program that just paid minimum wage. It didn't take taxes out, but it was a, a mental health program. That was the only job I could get. Mm-hmm. Then eventually time passed. I was able to become a food delivery driver. Then time passed and I started working in restaurants. Then I was able to go ahead and go to school from the community, then open a business. I also started a lingerie and clothing store at a flea market in Denham Springs, which is a country ass town outside of Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is pretty country too. Um, because I had to come up with other options. I was like, okay, what can I do? And so I always had an underwear fetish. I was like, let me start selling this at the flea market. If this goes well, then we'll go from there. So now we're online and that's where it's all down under apparel. And that, you know, those are the, you know, my two businesses that I was able to start after being a drug dealer since I couldn't find work anywhere else. Sure, sure. Yeah, you're right. I don't know how people can get out and uh, survive. And that's why you say they go back to what they know and, and back in jail. And it's just a vicious circle. So I'm happy you were able to figure out how to stay afloat here and, and write this book and do all the wonderful work that you're doing helping other people. So um, as we begin to wrap up, I want to make sure we're not missing anything that you wanted to highlight today. Mm, I think we probably just uh, cover it. You know, my main message is for people to not feel like that they're alone. Yes. That's why I, put, I really put myself out there in my book. And anytime I came across a point, I was like, oh, my God, I created Like, I don't know if I want to tell people that happened. And I was like, that's exactly what I need to write. And so I, I try to embarrass myself so that other people won't be 
ashamed for whatever they're going through. So this book is just like a really warm embrace and a wide open hug. I love that. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for sharing your your heart and your soul and the good and the bad with us with this book, Sex, Drugs, and Jesus. Give us your website and anywhere else folks can go to get a copy of this book, find out about your podcast, wherever you want to take us. Yeah, sexdrugsandjesus.com. For all my complications and being extra, I do like to keep something simple. But, you know, my entire body of work is at sexdrugsandjesus.com. And there's even a link there over to downunderapparel.com, too, so within my two websites. All the social media, all my my, my free courses, everything that I have is, is on those websites. Right. All righty. So we've been speaking with Devan and Hubert. His book is titled Sex, Drugs, and Jesus, a Memoir of Self-Destruction and Resurrection. Website is sexdrugsandjesus.com. You can find his not only his book, but his podcast and all the other good things that he's doing. Thank you for today. This was fun to finally figure out who you were and, and, and just spend a couple of moments finding out about your life and, and realizing that you are here now to help everyone else. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it immensely. 